everyone, welcome back to the show. As you may know, I've been traveling the world to find the best flavor of ice cream. Today I'm in the South with my good friend Sammy Joe. Nice to meet you, Sammy. And she's gonna try and show me the best flavor ice cream in down here in the South. Well, Mike, I'm so happy that you're joining us here down in the South. Now, this flavor of ice cream, it goes back in my family for ages and mm. ages. My grandma taught my mama and taught me, and so I made you some special I can't wait. homemade ice cream, and the flavor is called Deep Fried Bread Pudding. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it's 100% organic because I know you're watching your figure. Oh, thank you so, so much. I'm going to have you try some. You tell me what you mm. think. Thank you so much. Let's try this out. Mmm, wow, that is delicious. That's wow, that is really good. But you know what? I think I can find better in next destination. I want you to keep on traveling the world to find the next best flavor of ice cream. I want to say thank you so much for me letting me try this bread pudding. Alright, well you come back anytime. We got thank extra so love for you down here. <laughs> Tune in next time when I keep on traveling the world to find the best flavor of ice cream. Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the well here at SCSA. Glad that you're joining us here today. We're continuing a series, as Katie mentioned, called Finding Your Flavor, where we are not talking about ice cream, but I will be honest, I'll be the first one to confess that I have been the primary beneficiary from this series because every house that I visited for the last two weeks, I've been fed lots and lots of ice cream. All right, and I will not complain about that. I've been enjoying this. We may extend it to a 12-week series just for that reason because I'm getting a lot of ice cream. But that's not the only reason that I'm loving this series. I'm loving this series because I'm loving watching people, the light bulb go off. I'm loving seeing that click and saying that, you know what? Maybe the problem isn't me. Maybe the problem isn't God. Maybe I'm just a different flavor. Because what we're talking about here in this series is while there is only one way to God, and that way is our Lord Jesus Christ, there's only one way to God, there are many ways to the way. And many people will come to God through Christ, but in many different avenues. And that's what we're talking about here in this series. And we're just basing this study on a book by Gary Thomas, called uh, Sacred Pathways, where he discusses nine different flavors of spirituality. Now this list of nine flavors is not really, it's not like a biblical list or it's not a comprehensive list. It's just kind of from experience. And what we're talking about is that some of us may naturally connect with God in different ways than others. So what we're trying to do is figure out which way I most naturally connect with God. And maybe the reason that I've been far from God my whole life is someone told me, you have to connect in this way. And if you don't do it this way, then you're not really a true Christian. You don't really have faith. You don't really believe. Maybe that's just not my way. So what we're trying to see is maybe the problem isn't with God. Maybe the problem isn't with me. Maybe the problem is I'm just trying to be something that I'm not. But with that said, before we get into today's topic, I have to do a little disclaimer and something very important that I clear up, and I'll probably reiterate this throughout the series. This concept of different spiritual flavors can be very easily abused if you are insincere in your desire to grow closer to God. Very easily abused. Because the way to abuse this is to say that, you know what? That's just not who I am. The point is, is that the goal of this series is not to reduce your spiritual repertoire, but to increase it. Because as we were discussing in our life group, like one of the ways uh, of, of uh, one of the flavors, which we'll talk about, I think, next week, is like an activist. Okay, activist is someone who fights against social injustice, and some people really find themselves. These are the, dark, the Martin Luther Kings of the world. And some would say, I'm not an activist. Okay, well, that's true. But if you see someone in front of you being treated unjustly, or someone being bullied in front of you, I don't care if you're an activist or not an activist. You help the person out. Because we don't sit here and say, well, you know, that's not my spiritual flavor, but I will really pray for you and wish you the best. 
Okay? You may not be a caregiver. Okay? The Mother Teresa's of the world. You may not be a caregiver, but if there's someone in front of you, your brother or your sister is in need of help, then you don't say, well, that's not my flavor. The whole point is the opposite of that. The whole point is to expand and to discover new ways to experience God, not limit myself. So that's very, very important because if you are not sincere in your desire to grow close to God, you can take what I'm saying and say, you know what? Okay, that's not me. I'm never doing that again because Father Anthony told me that's my flavor and I have nothing to do with the other ones. That's the exact opposite of the goal of this series. And that is especially true today because today we will talk about two different spiritual flavors which are kind of grouped together, which I bet you that the majority of people don't like. And majority of people, unless you are this flavor, you don't want to hear anything about these two. We're going to talk about traditionalists and ascetics. Now, see, not, last week we talked about the naturalists. And even if you're not a naturalist, you can be like, okay, you know what? That's cool. Take a walk outside. Enjoy the nice scenery. Like, go on vacation. Like, that's cool. I can see myself. The sensates we talked about last week as well. You know what? Like, I like music and I like art. Okay, I can see myself get into that. But then today I'm going to talk about traditional. I'm going to talk about ascetic. I'm going to talk about loving God through rituals. And I'm going to talk about God through loving God through self-denial. And it's going to be very tempting to say, you know what? That ain't me. And I just don't want to be that. Well, I want to challenge you today to open your mind and see if maybe this is one of those flavors that you may not like, but that you may need. Okay? And follow me as we discuss that together. First of all, I say the word traditional. I say the word ascetic. I say the word self-denial. I say the word ritual. And we, many of us in this room, have very negative feelings once we even hear those words. And I feel like sometimes we react to those words like ascetic, self-denial, fasting, structure. We respond to those words like a child responds to the word bedtime. Okay? As soon as I hear bedtime, we dash the other way. That's not me. Get me away from there. Hey, Father Anthony, we're not legalism around here. Hey, Father Anthony, it's about a relationship, not about rules. Hey, Father Anthony, didn't Christ came to make us free? We just sang Amazing Grace. It's all about grace and all about Christ came to give us freedom. And are you saying that I can't go to heaven unless I fast? First thing I say is cool down. Okay, let's cool. Let's go. Let's go easy. Okay? What I will say to you is this. While it is absolutely true that many people have taken the concept of structured prayer and turned it into a legalistic religion, which I am not saying that we should do that. I'm not advocating for that. It is absolutely true that some people worship structure and some people take asceticism to an unhealthy degree. You know the people, right? The people who swear, curse, start fights, but then they think they're okay because they ordered no cheese on their bean burrito on a Friday, okay? There are some people who absolutely take it to a wrong degree. I think while that is absolutely something that exists, I think what also exists and is much more common amongst us is the opposite extreme, that we neglect a foundational principle in the spiritual growth, life of spiritual growth, and that is the life of structure, and that is the life of discipline and the life of self-denial. And yes, I am not here to tell you that if you don't fast, that you will not go to heaven. I'm not here to tell you that if you don't have structured prayer, that God will deny you the kingdom of heaven. But what I'm saying is there's more to life. Our goal ultimately is not just the kingdom of heaven. Our goal is heaven on earth. And our goal is spiritual growth. And we don't want to be the minimalistic society that says, just tell me what do I need to not get kicked out of heaven. Can I do this? That's like going to your wife and say, what does it take that you're going to kick me out of the house? Okay, just tell me where that line is, and I'm going to go right up to that line. As long as I don't cross that line, I'm okay. Is that the goal in marriage? To not get kicked out of the house? No, gentlemen, the answer is no. Okay, that's an, the goal is not just to not get kicked out of the house. The goal is to grow in intimacy and knowledge and, and, and relationship. And the same thing with our spiritual life. Some of us are looking at things only in terms of, do I need it or I don't need it? What I want to say is sometimes you need it. Not for salvation, not for heaven, but I say you need it for growth and for maturity in your spiritual life. I will be honest with you. 
I'm not judging anybody in this room. I'm judging only myself. I'll tell you about myself. I don't tell about anybody else, but you may benefit from what I'm about to say. There have been many times in my life where I have been opposed to fasting. I have been opposed to structured prayer. I have been opposed to this thing called the Egbeya, the prayer book of ours we'll talk about in a little bit. I've been opposed to the structural things, the ritualistic things. I said, I don't need them. I hear your excuses. I use those and I add my own excuses on top of that. And every single time, every single time, the root of it was not a problem with the rituals. The root was a problem with me. Because I believe that your response to structured prayer, your response to structure in your spiritual life says a lot more about the state of your heart than it does about the rituals or the prayers themselves. I'm not judging you. I'm saying when it comes to me. The reason why I was against structured prayer is because in the end, I wasn't really desiring that narrow path. I didn't want to make sacrifices. I wanted to go easy on myself. So the easy thing is to say, yeah, that's bad. But the truth is that I discovered about myself, and all of us need to look ourselves in the mirror. The heart that is truly all in, the heart that is truly committed to God 100%, the response to structure may be a little bit different than just, that's not me, I don't need that. So with that said, let's jump into our two topics. We're going to talk about traditionalists, we're going to talk about aesthetics, and these two are very closely linked, okay? So we're going to talk about them both, and with each of them, what we're going to see is, what is it, why is it important, and how do I practice it? So we're going to go, what, why, how? So what is a traditionalist? Why should anyone care about being a traditionalist? And number three, how do we practice it? Let's start with the what. What is traditionalist? Traditionalist is someone who loves God through ritual. Someone who loves God through ritual. And I know that word ritual brings up some, some of us, our hair stands straight. And I'm telling you, if you hate the word ritual, I bet you it is probably not because you hate the ritual, but because you, I won't say hate, but you have been abused by someone. Okay, you have been bullied spiritually by someone who said, this is the only way, and if you don't do it this way, you're bad, and you revolted against that ritual, when really what you were revolting against, you should have been revolting against, was the abuse of the ritual, so let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. What does the word ritual mean? The word ritual, as it says in your handout definition, says any practice or pattern of behavior that is regularly performed in a set manner. Ritual means something prescribed, means something that is set, that you do over and over. Another word for ritual which is a little bit more easy to swallow, is the word routine. And we, I want you to know, in every aspect of life, you have rituals. You follow certain rituals. How you get dressed in the morning is a ritual. What you do before you go to bed at night is a ritual. What you do when the first thing you get in the office is a ritual. You may not call it that, but that's what it is. A prescribed set of behavior. When I go in, I sit down, I get my coffee, I check my email, I go get a donut, whatever it may be. You have rituals in just about every aspect of your life. But then somehow when it comes to spiritual, we resist against it. What do spiritual, what do rituals mean in, in the spiritual life? What is tr a traditionalist? is all about set prayers. Okay, prayers that are written for me and documented for me. Set times of prayer. Not just I pray whenever I want, but I pray at set times. The liturgical cycle, okay, we're big on this in the Orthodox Church, where we have seasons of the year, that we have Lent, okay, and then we have Easter, and then we have Christmas, and we have different seasons. Now, I'm not saying that only traditionalists will enjoy the liturgy, because we talked about the liturgy before, and we said the liturgy kind of encompasses all the different spiritual flavors. But what I mean, a traditionalist loves the idea of an Orthodox liturgical service, because it means what? It means you come in, you stand in a row, everyone stands in rows, you say what's on the screen, everyone says it at the exact same time, there's no thought, there's no, there's no uh, um, I'm thinking about it, I do what I'm told to do, and we all follow in the exact same line. 
Some of us, we revolt against that. If you're a traditionist, you love that idea of all following the same prescription. Now, some of you, like I said, that's not spiritual, and that's not something that is, is, is the Christian life has nothing to do with ritual. Well, before you go too hard on ritual, who's the one who started the idea of rituals when it comes to our relationship with God? Who's the founder of religious rituals? God. Old Testament. I could have brought you a thousand verses, but I'm just going to pick one from Exodus chapter 29, verse, Exodus 29, verse 38. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. This is Moses. Okay, so he tells him, get an altar and do this. He gives him a prescription. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. Okay, two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. Day by day means every day do this. Okay, pattern, prescription. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. With the one shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hin of wine as a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight. You shall offer it with the grain offering and the drink offering as in the morning for a sweet aroma and offering made by fire to the Lord. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak with you. So God was, God is the one who started the ritual idea. And God is, says, my relationship with you, ritual is part of it. And you come every day and you do this. Then you go home and you do whatever you want. Then you come every evening and you do this. And it's exactly a certain way. It's a set of prescription. Later on, okay, in Exodus chapter 25, okay, we hear this verse, which was repeated throughout the Old Testament, especially to Moses. Okay, God had just finished giving Moses a very detailed description of how to build a tabernacle. And then he tells him, see to it that you make them according to the pattern which is shown you on the mountain. Traditionalist loves that word, the pattern shown to you. Because God didn't tell Moses, build me a tabernacle and, you know, be creative. Surprise me. That's not what he told him. He was very detailed in how big it should be. What kind of material should be used. What kind of color the wall should be. What kind of color the ceiling should be. He was as specific, you know the rings, okay, it was like a, a tent, okay, like a, a curtain, okay, on a pole. He was specific about the material, the color, the size of the rings, like the shower curtain rings. God is very particular about that. Then he said, see that you make it according to the pattern I've shown to you. I don't know about you. I don't see much wiggle room and see that you make it according to the pattern I've shown to you. God had a very specific set of instructions. One guy in the Old Testament, there's a guy named Korah. And Korah kind of revolted against the system. He's like, we don't need rituals and kind of every man for himself. And Moses, okay, you say that only Aaron can offer incense. Why can't I offer incense? Like, we're all equal, right? Like, we're all like, can we all get along kind of a thing? Like, there's no nothing right here. So Moses said to Korah, okay, you know what? Go ahead. You think you can offer incense? You think you can be a priest? Go ahead. I'll let you offer incense. Well, the result of, for Korah didn't go so well. Now it came to pass, number 1631. Now it came to pass, after Korah offered his incense, that the ground split apart under them, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, with their household and their men, with Korah, with all their goods. So they went, so all those went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them, and they perished from among the assembly. I would say that is a failure in the, ex in the experiment of whether or not God cares about ritual. Some of you thinking, I hear, I, I, believe me, I know all the responses to this because I've said them all, okay? Because I've resisted it as well. And some of you say, hey, that's Old Testament. That's Old Testament. And that's the, the we, whenever you say that's Old Testament, okay, you know maybe something because you're trying to wiggle around something. God of the Old Testament, same God as the New Testament. So if God liked it a certain way, okay, we love the Bible. The Bible, the Bible is this thick. Three quarters of it is the Old Testament. So you can't just throw away the Old Testament, but I'll give you the Old Testament. How about in the New Testament? Do we see structure? Do we see ritual? Absolutely. Book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, way after the life of Christ is finished and Christ has ascended up to heaven. Church has begun. It says, Acts 16, 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. 
They were following certain customs. Okay, that's where prayer was supposed to be made. Acts 21, verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Clear that there, that the early church had certain rituals, had certain set times of prayer, and they followed certain prescriptions. And you say to yourself, why would the disciples of the New Testament follow these rituals and these prescriptions of spirituality? Why would the disciples do anything? Because that's what their master taught them. Luke 4, verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, circle that part, as his custom was, as his ritual was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Jesus was never against rituals. Jesus was against the abuse of rituals. Jesus was never against doing things in, in a set way, in a structured way. He was against the spiritual bullying of the Pharisees who said, that's the only way to the way. He was never saying that that is not a way, but he was saying that is not the only way to the way, and that's what they taught. And that's why a lot of us feel, like I said, this word structure rituals, we feel like we've been bullied with this. And some people said, if you don't fast like this, and you don't pray like this, and you don't follow these rituals, then you can't know God. And that's what we're revolting against. We're not revolting against the actual rituals themselves. The rituals have value. That's okay. <laughs> the rituals have value. The rituals have value. But our problem is, is that we like shortcuts. Okay, we like shortcuts. Like I said earlier, we want to know, do I need this to get into heaven or not? And if I tell you, you should fast every now and then, you say, uh, do I need it to get into heaven? And then we say, we don't, uh, so we are shortcut. We're a bottom line. We're, life is busy, okay? And we don't have time for all these extraneous spiritual practices. Just boil it down to me. And I'm telling you, that's not how relationships work. We said that the spiritual life is a relationship and relationships have a back and a forth. Relationships have a beginning. Relationships have a growth. Relationships have a maturity. And that's what we need to be striving towards. is spiritual maturity, not just spiritual birth. We need to be striving towards spiritual maturity, not just spiritual birth. And I tell you that rituals are a key part of deepening your relationship with God. Why? Let me tell you two things, the why for, for rituals. Rituals provide two things that we as society, we desperately need these two things balance and consistency. We need balance and we need consistency. Two things that are missing from our spiritual repertoires is these two. Why? What's balance mean? Balance means that, as I said, we're all different spiritual flavors. We're all different spiritual flavors. Some people love the joy of the Lord. Some people love to repent. Some people love to sing. Some people love to cry. Some people love to pray, okay, in the silence. Some people love to shout it into the mountaintops. Some people love to care for the poor. Some people love to preach to the homeless. Like, everyone, we have different spiritual flavors. What rituals do is they balance us out. Okay, like I said earlier, like the liturgical cycle, the calendar of the year. Some people, very ascetic, man, we love Lent, and we love to fast, and we love to cry, and we love repent, and we end with end. But thank God it's not Lent year-round. Okay, because then the church would be full of just not the happiest people in the whole wide world. Okay, thank God that there is Lent and those who find themselves not, that's great. But then the church says, okay, cool it with the repentance and the fasting and now joy of the Lord. But joy of the Lord has to have an end, not an end, but as much as we need to shift now into mission and service and preaching the gospel. And now we need to shift into praising God just for who he is. So the liturgical cycle, the calendar, the season of the church keep us balanced. Because some people, me, y'all know me, I'm joy of the Lord kind of a guy. I'm not a fasting kind of guy. I'm not the ascetic kind of guy. I'm joy of the Lord. But I thank God that the church makes me fast. And I thank God that the church gives me a season to say, okay, cool it with the joy. Like we know the joy is coming. There's no doubt about it. Joy is great. We need, we need to 
we need to focus here on repentance, self-examination. And the church gives us the balance. Same thing, not just with the church, global, but also with ourselves and our personal prayers. Like we talk about set structured prayers. We know we need to be thankful when we pray. We know we need to repent when we pray. We know we need to ask God's supplication when we pray. We know we need to praise God when we pray. Well, I'm telling you that every single person in this room is naturally good at one of those things, is naturally good at some form of prayer. But when we have a set of prayers in front of us, it keeps us balanced. And that's what the church says. Start every prayer by giving thanks. You need to be thankful even if you're not a thankful by nature. But then you need a time of repentance. Then you need a time of praise. Then you need a time of supplication. The church keeps us balanced. I love this verse from Ecclesiastes 3.1. I think the Beatles even made a song after this saying, to every, everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. There's a season for everything. And when we have structure and we have rituals, it keeps, was it the Beatles, right? The birds? Okay. The birds. Okay. A ripoff of the Beatles, apparently. Okay. Keeps us balanced. Okay. And it gives us the consistency to pray day by day. Now, how? This one's an easy one. Okay, we talked about the what, we talked about the why. The how is this little guy right here. Okay, and this is called the Book of Hours. Okay, or some of you know it in the Coptic word is called Egbeya. Okay, the idea is not that this book is gold and that this book has the key of salvation inside it. Every Orthodox church, okay, every church at some point in time had a book of prayer. Okay, and this is the Coptic Orthodox Church's version of it. Okay, the other Orthodox churches have a different version. Okay, the Catholic Church has a version. Okay, um, uh, other traditions have versions of... The whole idea is a set of prescribed prayers that tell you at certain times throughout the day you should pray, and this is a tool to use during that prayer. And it balances us out. Okay, because the seven hours of prayer, there's seven different times throughout the day that it gives us to pray. Morning hour, third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, etc. Every hour has a theme. So the theme of the morning hour is resurrection, power, victory of the Lord. Theme of the third hour, that's when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples on Pentecost. The theme there is filling, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Sixth hour is focused on the crucifixion. It's very repentant. Ninth hour is focused on the death of Christ. The evening hours are focused on repentance before our own ultimate death because every time we sleep and close our eyes, we remember that one day we'll close our eyes and we won't actually open them again. So we're reminding ourselves of that. And then there's a midnight hour in the middle of the night to keep watch and keep vigil. What I'm telling you, some of you are very good at vigil, but many of us are not. That hour gives us something about vigil. Some of us are very good at power of the Lord in the morning, but we're very bad at remembering our own death and being prepared for our own death. So what this does is it gives us balance. It gives us balance to balance out all of our different spiritual flavors. Is it biblical to pray at different hours? I put some verses in your handout. I won't bring them up on the screen. Absolutely. Acts chapter 3 verse 1 shows about how Peter and John went to the temple at the ninth hour, a.k.a. the hour of prayer. Okay, and that's seen clearly throughout the book of Acts. King David said seven times a day, I praise your name. All right, set times throughout the day. And God, like I said, commanded it, said in the morning do this, in the evening do this. What's the pushback against the Egbeya? What's the pushback? The pushback is, especially if you're a sensate, we talked about last week, you got, you don't like this, okay? Because you love to, you like to wheel and deal, okay? You like to free flow. You say it's so boring and so insincere. Like, let me just praise God for who he is and let me just love God. Let me just worship God. And I say to you, more power to you, all right? And that is a great thing. And I would say to you, that you should not view this as a cage. You should view this as a tool, or better yet, a toolbox. 
And that's why, again, the wrong idea. Some of us were told, don't pray outside of this, and this is a cage. So you feel like praising God, ah, it's not the hour of praise. Be quiet, come back later. And some of us view this as a cage. We have to do it a certain way. I'm saying this is not a cage, this is a toolbox. And this means, you know what? This means you wake up in the morning and you are flowing and you are praying and you're rolling. Go with it, man. You're great at prayer. That's how I wake up in the morning. I wake up in the morning, I don't want to think, I don't want to talk, I don't want to do anything. So what I love is that this gives me words to say to put words that I can't think of words and feelings that I can't think of feelings and expressions that I can't think of expressions. So if you can roll, roll. If you can repent, repent. If you can, great. This is not a cage. This is a toolbox. And that's why I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this, and this will judge all of us who grew up in the church. What we hate, what we hate, people who come to the church and visit the church and find out about this, think this is the most valuable thing in our church. And all of you people are like, what's wrong with them? Their mental problem? No. Because they understand what this is. They understand that you can try to figure it out on your own every single day and try to come up with the words on your own every single day. And some of you may be good at that. I don't think anyone is really able to do that consistently throughout their life, but that's fine if you say otherwise. Well, they figured out that someone has written down for me. Like, you can figure out the answers to the test or someone's giving you the answers to the test. Like, you can figure out how to pray on your own or someone told you, here's how I pray. And you can use this and then you can take this and this now becomes, again, not a cage, but a springboard that you can start here and then boom, let it lead you. And that's what often I describe, I, I, I tell people to do, is read the prayer of thanksgiving right here and then go with your own prayer of thanksgiving. Like you want to pray your own words, it's not this or, it's this and. Use this prayer of thanksgiving and then keep on thanking God. Use this prayer of repentance and then keep on repenting after that. Like don't think of it as either I do this or I do that. Jesus said when he said to the Pharisees, Matthew 23, 23, is one of the most important verses in all of scripture. When Jesus is yelling at them for being legalistic, what did he tell them? He said, you guys do this, you guys do this, you guys do this, you guys do this. He didn't tell them, stop doing it. He said, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So it's not a matter of, should I be nice to the poor or should I say my prayers? Jesus' answer would be, yes. Should I do the rituals or should I care for my neighbor? Jesus would say, yes. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. He was never against the ritual. He was against the abuse of the ritual. So that is the traditionalist, okay? We're going to talk about the danger of being a traditionalist, but we're gonna talk about that at the end. I'm gonna lump that together with the aesthetics. I think, like I said, those two are kind of connected right there. The point of the traditionalist is to take the rituals and use that to worship God. Not to worship the rituals, but to use the rituals to lead me to God, okay? Every week, for those who were here last week, okay, on the back of your handout, we have like a challenge every week, okay? Actually, I have two challenges every week. And the two challenges will correlate to the two types of spiritual flavors that we're talking about. So you see right there, the challenge this week, okay, the challenge this week, this is not the only way to be a traditionalist, but we're going to challenge ourselves every week to taste a new flavor of ice cream and to see that we may discover something that does it for us. We're going to challenge ourselves. We're not going to be lazy. We're not going the wide path. We're going the narrow path. We want to go deeper in our relationship with God. The challenge this week is we're all going to set aside some time to pray from this book. And you have two options. There's one option right there, but I came up with the second one as I was thinking about it. Two options. Option number one is you choose one hour of the Egbeya, all right, and you do that three times this week. So you may say, you know what? The first hour. I'm going to wake up 10 minutes early every day this week or three times this week, and I'm going to do the first hour before work. Or you may say at lunchtime, I'm going to, instead of eating for an hour, I'm going to eat for 45 minutes, I'm going to spend 15 minutes, and I'm going to pray the sixth hour, the noon hour. You can do that three times a week. Or you can do something else, and I want to challenge people to try this. Try one day 
to do three hours in one day. Just one day. Say, you know what? On Wednesday, I'm going to wake up and do the first hour. I'm going to take a walk at around, you know, 10 a.m., do the third hour. Just five minutes, okay? I'm not talking about, when I say hour, doesn't mean an hour, okay? An hour of prayer, like a time of prayer, takes you like five, 10 minutes maximum. So even just do half it, just do five minutes. And then I'm going to go out at lunch, I'm going to do that. And then I'm in the afternoon, I'm going to do that. And try throughout the day, try one day to do several hours throughout the day. Okay, those are your two options for the challenge. You can do either one. The goal is not the ritual, but what the ritual leads us to. And those who say rituals are dead, I tell you this, a ritual is not a person. So a ritual cannot be alive or dead. If the ritual is dead, you are dead. And some people will come to the liturgy and say, this is so boring. There's no life. There's no spirit. And the guy next to you found the kingdom of heaven. So what I say to you, it's not the ritual. It's you. Some people look at this book and they say, this is worse. This is torture. This is like worse than, 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 than getting my, 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 my teeth pulled out. Okay, my wisdom teeth pulled out. And some person next to you says, I would not know God if it wasn't for this. So what I tell you, it's not this, it's this. It's not this, it's this, okay? That's our challenge for the first one, okay? That's the traditionalist. Let's go to the ascetic. If you hated traditionalist, you're gonna hate ascetic even more. If you hated traditionalist, you're gonna hate ascetic because ascetic is loving God through self-denial. Some of you are thinking to yourself, why did I come to church on the self-denial week? Last week was the take a walk in the woods week. And I came on the stinking self-denial week. When I say self-denial, ascetic does not mean just fasting, but it could mean fasting. It's self-denial of food. It's self-denial of comfort. It's self-denial financially. It's self-denial in some of the things and a lot of the things that complicate our lives is leading a simple life and denying ourselves some of the pleasures of this life. Now, of all the different ways, of all the different flavors, Okay, I won't make you raise your hand if you're an ascetic. I won't make you raise your hand because you may get stuff thrown at you, right? Of all the different flavors, the one that has to go against society the most is the ascetic. The one that is most counter to the society and culture that we live in is the ascetic. Because our culture is the exact opposite of asceticism. Our culture is, why in the world would anyone deny themselves something that makes them feel good? Why in the world would you eat a veggie burger when you can eat a hamburger? Why would you say, I'm not going to drink a cup of coffee? It's not like there's, there's, there's kids dying in the street because of that cup of coffee. Why would anyone do that? Why would anyone deny themselves the things that make them happy? Why be quiet when you can talk? Why sit in silence when you can party? Like we did that moment of silence right now with the music team, which was fantastic. But a lot of us were like itching, got like ants in our pants, like we can't stand it. Why in the world would it be silent when it's more fun to party? We view ascetics, if we're honest, as extremists, as fanatics. And I'll prove it to you. Who in the Bible is ascetic? Who do you think of when I say ascetic in the Bible? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And what do we usually think about John the Baptist? Not only he's ascetic, he's a crazy guy. Okay? John the Baptist is characterized as a crazy guy. Like we say, ascetic John the Baptist. No one says, I want to be like John the Baptist when I grow up. Like no one says that. I want to be like Peter. He was nice. He walked on water. I want to be like St. Paul. He preached. I want to be, we want to be like all those people. No one says, I want to be like John the Baptist. I want my kid to be John the Baptist. I want my kid to have crazy hair. I want my kid to wear a camel's thing. I want my kid, we think of John the Baptist like eating bugs, okay? And sometimes we picture him like, like eating bugs like a frog. Like, you know what I mean? We view John the Baptist as a crazy person. Why? Because we can't comprehend someone denying themselves comfort. We can't comprehend it. Doesn't make any sense. Like someone have a gun to his head? Did you have to eat bugs instead of meat? 
No, no one told me how to do it. Someone told him he got to be poor, and when he could have had, like, riches and comfort, no one told me how to do it. He made a decision on his own to deny himself pleasure, and we think of that as that's nuts. But you know, there was another ascetic in the New Testament as well. It wasn't just John the Baptist. Jesus was an ascetic. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Jesus was led up into the spirit, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Jesus fasted, self-denial. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, not just food. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed, ascetic. I got news for you. Not only was Jesus ascetic, but Jesus expected his disciples, those who say, I follow him, to be ascetic as well. He said as such in Matthew chapter 9, verse 15. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So maybe asceticism isn't as extremist and fanatical as we think it is. Because Jesus, I said earlier, like, why, why be miserable when you can party? Jesus liked to party. He was a friend of sinners. Jesus had a good time. But Jesus also was ascetic. And that's kind of the punchline of the series, in case you haven't figured it out already, is that no flavor is better than another. And we need to, like I said in the beginning, expand our spiritual repertoire. We say, I may not be ascetic by my nature, but I need to practice some asceticism. I may not be traditional by my nature, but I need to practice some traditionalism. And that's what Jesus was. Jesus knew how to, how to, how to celebrate with the enthusiasts. Jesus knew how to discuss with the intellectuals. And Jesus knew how to fast when it came time to fast and deny himself. Why? Here's your why for asceticism. And you believe this to be true. I know that you believe this to be true before I even say it. You believe this about every area of your life. That growth requires discipline. You believe that in every area of your life. The only area that we wish it wasn't true and we deny it is spiritual life. You know you will not advance in your career without discipline. You know you will not advance as far as your physical health without discipline. You know there's no area of your life no relationship that you can advance without discipline. Yet somehow, when it comes to the spiritual life, we like to deny it. Again, like I said earlier, we live at an era, the weakest era of discipline ever. We have never been a less disciplined as a society and as a people. You don't believe me. Go check out your own plate next time you go to the buffet line. You go look at your own plate. Okay, and you see what's in there and you see that we're not good at discipline. And I'm not just talking about food. We stink at disciplining ourselves with our food. We stink at disciplining ourselves when it comes to our thoughts, what we think, what we say, the stuff we watch on TV, the stuff we look at on the internet. We stink at discipline. There had never been a time where we as a society have been worse at self-control. That's why, not to get on my soapbox here, that's why divorce is up. That's why people commit adultery a lot more than they used to. That's why premarital sex is rampant. It's not even something that's seen as bad anymore. Why? Because why would I deny myself a pleasure when it's available to me? Like, that doesn't make any sense. That's not our society. Our society says, you want to go get it. I just do it in a nice, loving way and be safe and whatever it may be. But why in the world, if I want something, would I not go take it? Obey your thirst. Okay? Have it your way. Like, this is the slogans that, that, that feed our society. Asceticism is the exact opposite of all that stuff. And asceticism says to deny yourself. And believe it or not, you may not be ascetic by nature, but if you are a Christian, you are ascetic by the fact of being a Christian, by being a follower of Christ. Because Jesus said the following, if anyone desires to come after me, anyone desires to come after me equals Christian. If anyone is a Christian, anyone is a follower of Christ, anyone who comes after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him deny himself. You know, this idea of asceticism, 
Usually we think of asceticism, we say the monks, okay? Is, you, are, is your church ascetic? Yeah, we have the monks. Those guys in the desert, those guys are very ascetic. They kind of do it on our behalf, okay? So yeah, we're very ascetical as a people and we take pride, okay? Egyptian, Coptic, we have the monks and the history and those guys are very ascetic. And we never do anything ascetic, but we take pride in them and they kind of do it on our behalf. Let me tell you something about the history of monasticism in Christianity. Did you know for the first 300 years there was no, there was no monasticism? There was no monasticism in Christianity. Did you know that? It wasn't until the 4th century, late 3rd century, 4th century, that, that monasticism came in. Why was there no monasticism in the first 300 years of Christianity? You know why? Because everyone was a monk. Everyone was a nun. Everyone lived an ascetic life. There was no distinction between Christian and ascetic. A Christian meant that what I have belongs not to me, but to everybody. That my life is not mine, but I give it and I deny myself. It wasn't until Christianity became the religion of the empire and it became to flourish and became now the aristocrats and the high class people and became flourishing that all of a sudden the church said, hey, but wait a minute. There's all these like verses about like deny yourself. And there's a group of people that said, this is not Christianity. We need to deny ourselves. We need to leave. We need to leave you to go deny ourselves. And that's a sad state. All Christians are called to be ascetic. All Christians are called to deny themselves. It's not a monk thing. It's not a nun thing. It's a Christian thing because that's who our master was. Jesus said it this way in Luke 14, verse 33. Likewise, wherever you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. He didn't say who fasts. He didn't say who's willing to do a little quiet in the morning. He said he's not willing to let go of everything that he has. Who's not willing to live for me versus live for this world. He cannot be my disciple. <clears throat> How are we going to practice this? I'm going to give you three ways that you can practice. Okay, we don't need to do them all this week, but these are three ways that you can practice asceticism, and I'll try to go through them quickly for the sake of time. All right, three ways. Number one, solitude. Okay, because usually you think asceticism, you're thinking food. I'm telling you, it's not just food. It's time. It's solitude. It's quiet. And this is not just, don't think to yourself, introvert, extrovert. This is not introvert, extrovert. Okay? Introverts naturally like to be alone. That's fine. I'm talking about all of us need solitude. You say, why do we need solitude? We say, I'm lonely already. We say, I'm already alone all the time. Solitude does not mean alone. It means alone with God. And here's the important part. Okay, try to get this. I'm going to try to draw a picture for you in your brain, okay, that shows you what an ascetic truly is, and it's not going to make sense to you because you're going to think exact opposite. I'm going to tell you, ascetics are the most romantic people in the world. Ascetics are the true romantics. Because what an ascetic is saying when it comes to the solitude is, I want to leave to be with the one that I love. Ascetics are very romantic. And I want to be alone with the one I love. And I want to leave the distractions and the stuff, not just to be alone and to be an introvert and to be a miserable person, but to spend more time with the one I love. And I'm telling you, all of us need that alone time with the one we love. Because what would my marriage be if my life with my wife was always in public? If we never had alone time, if it was always guests all around and all with people all around, that would not be a relationship. There has to be an alone time. And that's what I mean by solitude. One of the saints of the church, St. Jerome, said, beautiful, he was clearly an ascetic. He said to me, the town is a prison and solitude a paradise. Okay, that's the heart of the ascetic. That's saying, not in a I hate people kind of a way, but like Jesus kind of a way. Like, I need to get up early and I love the people and I want to spend the day with the people, but the one I love is really there. I need my alone time with him. We need to learn how to practice that. Is it possible to practice solitude without being in a monastery? Is it possible to practice, come on, Father Anthony, like we live in 2016. 
And in a minute, we just did 30 seconds of silence and it was torture. Is there really a way to have solitude in the world that we live in today, or do I have to go to the desert? Again, back to Jerome. What Jerome said is, the lay person must find in the busy city what the monks find in the desert. And what I want to say to you, I am not talking just about a physical separation from the world. I mean more of a mental and spiritual separation from the world. So for example, maybe you could get up 10 minutes earlier in the morning before anyone else in the house has woken up and you could sneak off to your little prayer room and you could spend those 10 minutes in silence before the day comes and the noise comes. You could spend 10 minutes in silence. You could maybe get to the office 10 minutes early or you could sneak away at lunchtime, okay? I remember it was, it was a time when I used to, don't laugh at me, okay? When I used to during, I wouldn't, I would want to pray the Egbeya, okay? So when I was working as a consultant before I became a priest, and I would try to find a way in my office to sneak. I eat lunch in five minutes. So what I would do is I would go at the bottom of the staircase, okay? Like the staircase, and it comes in a little nook right here. And I would stand there, and I would pray. Okay, every few minutes I'd hear, you know what I mean? Like someone walking down the steps, but I would stand there. And I found a little monastery in my busy corporate office, 15 floors, whatever it was, downtown D.C. department or whatever it was. I found a little monastery. I found a little desert oasis right there, which I would sneak away just five minutes a day. I know a lady who gets up sometimes because her house is noisy, and she got... I don't know how many kids she got over there. She sneak in the bathroom. She turn on the water, okay, to make some noise. And she sit in the bathroom and she pray. That's her oasis. You're saying to yourself, that's legalism. And that's, you know what I mean, extremism. And that, does she need to go to the bathroom to pray? Okay, is she going to lose her salvation if she doesn't pray at that time? Look, she may not lose her salvation, but she may lose her mind if she doesn't pray during that time. And that's what solitude is. Number two, fasting. Can't get very far in asceticism without talking about fasting. Okay, and we talk about solitude, we talk about fasting. When I say fasting, I don't mean just food. I mean denying yourself certain pleasures or comforts like TV, like a cup of coffee, like a Facebook or two, like a period of time where you would fast from that thing. And you would say, you know what? I'm going to put this thing upstairs and I'm going to be downstairs for a half hour. A half hour, I'm going to fast from this thing. Fasting just means to deny yourself certain pleasures and comforts. Now you say to yourself, why in the world do we do that? Like, why would I do that? Why would I torture myself? Or even better, why would God want me to torture myself? What kind of cruel God wants me to be miserable? Okay, back to romance. Because this ascetic is the romance. I'm going to ask you a different question. What kind of selfish, egotistical woman would require a gold ring around her finger for me to love her? What kind of egotistical, selfish woman would require flowers, would require a ring, would require all these things? You say, that's not how it works. I don't give a ring because I have to. I give a ring because I want to. I give a ring because I desire to show my love and express my love. It's not, saying, it's, not, it's not saying that, that it's demanded. God isn't demanding we fast. God isn't demanding what God is saying. Okay, I'll I tell you what. One time, with me personally, I've seen this where you start fasting for the wrong reasons. Okay, you start fasting for the wrong reason. You start to say to yourself, okay, God, I'm going to fast, but you know you owe me. Or God, I'm going to fast, but like, duh, I'm having cheese. Okay. That's like giving your wife the ring. And saying, but you, 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 you better get my slippers, okay, when I give you this. No, that defeats the whole point. 
Ascetics don't fast to torture themselves. We fast to torture ourselves. We fast for the wrong reasons, and this is one of the most judgmental things that we do. We fast for the wrong reason, there's somebody fasting for the right reason, and we project our wrong reason on them and say they're legalists. Because the only way they would really be fasting if they're that legalist, because I would never do that, and we're actually the true legalists. They don't fast out of legalism. Ascetics don't complain about fasting. The true ascetic, the miserable ascetic, yes, that's the one who complains. The legalist is the one who complains. But the true ascetic doesn't complain. The true ascetic doesn't care what you eat. The true ascetic desires opportunities to express his love to God. And he desires ways to say, God, I love you, and I will give this up, and I will make this sacrifice, and I don't need anybody else to know except you. That's, again, that's the problem with the Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't just fast. They wanted everyone to know they're fasting. The Pharisees didn't just fast. They wanted to make sure everyone else was fasting. Because they were miserable, they wanted others to be miserable. That's the wrong kind of fasting. That's, that's the legalism, where I tell you that you must do what I'm doing because that's the only way. And that's not what a true ascetic is at all. Okay, solitude, fasting, and third, last but not least, retreat slash vigil. And again, let's go back to the idea of the romance story because the ascetics are the true romantics. An ascetic loves to wake up early in the morning before sun has even risen and go spend time with his beloved. Ascetic loves to stay up late when everyone else has gone to sleep. You know why? Because back to the romance. What do parents love to do? Parents, you ever done something stupid like stay there and watch your children sleep? Okay, we've all done it, okay? And it's insane because they're doing nothing. And it's just watching them sleep. It's just you love them. You just want to see them even as they're sleeping. And that's crazy. But when you love someone, you just want to see them sleep. And the true ascetic, that's the way he is. You say, why do you get up in the middle of the night to pray? I say, because I love God. I just want to spend time with God. And it's not a legalism. Don't project your own mistakes on them because I love God and I desire to be with him. There's a time in my life where I had always heard, okay, in this book of prayer, there's a midnight hour. It's actually, the midnight hour is divided into three parts. So like what they would do is, is back in the days, you would like pray at midnight, at 2 a.m. and at 4 a.m. Okay, that's kind of the, the, the three watches, the midnight hour. And there was something, it was twice in my life where I remember doing it, something very serious that I was praying for something very serious. Look, you always pray, okay? But when there is, you need more God, you need more prayer. You don't try to add more into the existing. Okay, I need more, so I, I pray more. So I remember I added this midnight prayer into, my, into my, my routine. And I did it for like a week at a time, two different occasions. And what that would mean is I would go to bed, you know, let's say nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, whatever. And then I would set my alarm to wake up at about one in the morning. And then I would pray. Then I'd go back to bed, and I set my alarm to wake up again at like 3 in the morning and pray. And I'll tell you, at that moment in time, my brain was, was not working. And it wasn't a lot of, 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 of thoughts going through. But I'm glad I had this tool. And what that was, that was basically my way to say, God, I love you. And I'm trusting you. And I'm going to hold on to you more than anything else. And I don't even mind giving up. It wasn't a bribing kind of a thing. And I'm telling you, there's great power in keeping vigil. Crazy to wake up in the middle of the night and pray? No. We wake up in the middle of the night all the time. You, but you wake up for the wrong reasons. You're stressed out for your presentation the next day. You wake up in the middle of the night. You, you're excited because you got Christmas the next day. You wake up early in the morning. We do it all the time for things that we're excited about, things that stress us out, things that are on my mind. Why can't we wake up early for God? Why can't we wake up in the middle of the night for God? I'm not saying that you got to. I'm not saying you're a heathen if you don't. But what I'm saying is expand the spiritual repertoire. 
Try to expand your spiritual horizons and venture into the world of traditionalism and venture into the world of asceticism. Try to deny yourself some of the comforts and pleasures of life and you may discover a connection with God that you didn't know was possible. That's all I'm saying. Now, with that said, real quick, okay, then I'm done here, okay, because I know the game's at one today, okay? The dangers, all right? With every week, there are beautiful things about being a traditionalist and being an ascetic, but there are also dangers. We have to be fair and talk about the dangers, the negatives associated. Now, I'm going to talk about three dangers that really apply to both of the two, traditionalism and asceticism, and I'll try to go through them kind of quick right here. Number one is seeking to earn God's favor. Big temptation for the, the structure guy, for the guy who likes the egg bay, or for the guy who does the fasting. Big temptation is to say, God, you owe me. As I said earlier, I was doing that with God. I was saying, God, I fasted. You owe me this. Okay, God, I need this, so I'm a fast. I'm going to do these prayers, and God, you better come through. That's the opposite of what asceticism is. Asceticism is not about bribery. Asceticism is about loving God and expressing to God your love for him. I remember there was one time in my life where I was, I was kind of in this phase. And I remember it clear as day. I remember it clear as day. God spoke to me very, very, very clearly. I was coming to God, and I was saying, like I said, I said, you know what, God? Like, I pray this. I fast this. And I do this. And I had this, like, woe is me. Okay, because like I have to read the Bible in the morning. And woe is me that I had to spend time with God. Like, don't you see like I'm a martyr, God? You know what God told me? Very vivid. He said to me, you know what? I don't ever want you to pray again. I don't care if you pray. I don't care if you read the Bible. I don't care if you fast. I don't care. I don't want any of that stuff. He said to me, I'm going to be here in the morning. If you want to spend time with me, come spend time with me. If not, don't come near me. Some of you say that God is kind of harsh. Like God deals with each of us as we are. So I'm kind of... Okay, so God is okay with me. And I felt God tell me that. Saying, look, you're making a big stink about spending time with me and go tell the whole world, I'm a great man. I spent time with God. Like, even I spent time with miserable God over there. Say, so, you know what? Don't spend time with me. I don't care. Go do what you want. You want me to bless you? I'll bless you. I already blessed you. I gave you the best parents. I gave you the best life. I gave you the best wife. I gave you the best kids. I gave you the best of everything. You don't need blessing from me. Take all the blessing. I love you. And if you want to spend time with me, I'm going to be here. But don't do me any favors. Don't think that, that, that I... I'm going to stop heaven and earth. Sometimes we seek to bribe God. Number two, putting practices above people. Putting practices above people. You know the wrong kind of spiritually ascetic person or the wrong traditionalist? You know this to be true. Some of the most ascetic spiritual people in the world are the meanest, rudest, most judgmental, difficult people, miserable people in the universe. Why? Because there's a temptation to put my spiritual practice above people. Jesus went up the mountain to pray, but he didn't stay up that mountain. He came down to preach. He came down to heal. He came down to love. Jesus never said to the people, you know what? Like, I didn't get up early this morning for my quiet time, so y'all just have to go without me today. Jesus was very ascetic, but he always denied himself. He didn't deny people. And the true, let me say the false ascetic is the one who says, I got no time for you because I need to pray. Oh, I got no time to spend with my children. My, my children are a nuisance to me so that I can pray and read my Bible and serve and do all these things. No, the true ascetic denies himself, not denies others. Not denies the people around him love and care and concern. That's why I said earlier about the caregiver. <clears throat> the true ascetic realizes 
that the rituals are just a means to an end. They're a means to love God. But loving people is also an equally important means to loving God, and we cannot prioritize one over the other. Okay, we need to do these you ought to have done without leaving others undone. Okay, so putting practices above people. Last but not least, this goes without saying, okay, the temptation to replace relationship with rules. Okay, if you leave after all I'm saying, and you heard me say, relationship isn't as important, just follow these rules and you're good, you missed everything that I said. Because I am telling you that the rituals, the rules, are a means to an end, a means to discipline ourselves, a means to deepen our relationship with God, not a replacement of our relationship with God. Some people, you all know them, do nothing all year. Okay, don't come to church, don't do nothing. And Holy Week come around, they fast all day, holy, every day of Holy Week. They put a big money in their donation box and they feel like, you know what, I'm good because I did this one great act or I did this one great thing. And I tell you, you can never replace relationship with rules. Okay, it's not about the action. It is about the relationship. So there we are, ladies and gentlemen. There's our traditionalist and our ascetic. Y'all pumped up to be traditionalists and ascetics? Woo! Maybe not as much. But you realize the importance and the need for some structure in our spiritual lives? Probably yes. Here's our homework assignment for, today, for this week, okay? Igbe, I already spoke about our traditionalist one. We're going to do one Igbe prayer three times. Okay, like I said, you can choose one hour, do it three days, or you can choose one day. I'm trying to lean towards that, that second option, okay? Choose one day and pray different hours throughout the day. It'd be a different experience for a lot of us. The second challenge for the ascetic is we're going to dedicate one day to fasting this week. Okay, preferably Wednesday or Friday, because those are the days that we traditionally eat the church fasts. We're going to dedicate one day to fasting. When I say fasting, I don't mean just changing your diet. I gave you three things right here in your challenge right here. Number one, you're going to skip breakfast and coffee in the morning. Okay, and for some of us, just skip coffee is like, <gasps> like I better call in sick that day. Okay, no, like you, you'd be able to make it. Okay, you'd be able to make it. It's going to skip breakfast. We're going to skip coffee, and we're going to see maybe even we skip our morning snack. Okay, we see if we make it to lunch. Okay, that's going to be the idea, but we're not just going to do that. Number two, or B, I put it on your handout. You're going to say a short prayer every time you're hungry. Every time you feel like, I need coffee. I need my breakfast. Instead of just being miserable, you can turn that misery into a prayer. Say, God, I love you. And I'm willing to sacrifice even my coffee, my delicious, savory, beautiful aroma coffee. Like, I'm willing to sacrifice that for you because I love you. And then number three, we're going to try, even after we break our fast, and we have our lunch, to abstain from animal products. That's the way the church traditionally fast is, is abstain from meat, okay, and dairy products, Okay, for the remainder of the day. So a period of no food, no drink, and then the rest of the day of, of abstaining from certain kinds of food and drink, all right, for the rest of that day. We're going to try it, okay? And I'm not saying anyone's going to be St. Anthony by tomorrow, or we're going to, you know, I'm saying like fast 40 days like Jesus, but I'm saying we're going to try it. And we, because we realize that we need the discipline and the consistency, and we need the self-denial. We know that, okay? We know that about ourselves, so why resist it? Last but not least, finish off this verse. 1 Corinthians 9.27, St. Paul, who was all about the joy of the Lord, who was all about preach the gospel, who was all about fight against the injustice in the world, also said we need asceticism, we need traditionalism. He said, I discipline my body, and I bring it into subjection. Why? Lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. You may not see the need for traditionalism and asceticism in your spiritual life, but I guarantee you this. You will have a ceiling on your spiritual life as long as you go by, fly by the seat of your pants. Okay, true maturity okay, and true growth requires some structure to carry us through those dry seasons when we don't know what to say or what to do, okay? Let's stand together and say a prayer. <clears throat> In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God, amen. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you from the depth of our heart. Thank you, Lord, that you give us a chance to follow after you in your footsteps. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to not like always be selfish, not always be thinking about what makes us happy and pleasure and comfort and easy life. You sacrificed everything for us, Lord, and we pray that you would help us to make sacrifices for you this week and learn a life of self-denial, to learn what that means and, and, and give us like the strength and the wisdom to, to be able to do it because it's, it's, it's foreign to kind of everything we were raised with. We pray that through this series, we're discovering not just what we're good at, but we're discovering new ways to get to know you and to deepen our relationship with you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. The prayers of all your saints. Here as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.